Awesome. Thank you, Tyrone. Great to be with you guys tonight. It's good. Uh, people coming back from holidays, and it's just so good to be, as Ty said, worshipping together, opening God's Word together. As Ty said, we're uh, doing a short series, three or four weeks, I'm not sure, uh, in, in Ecclesiastes. And so I want to invite you now, we're starting uh, from Ecclesiastes 1. Uh, let's open together um, the Word, and uh, it'll come up on the screen as well for us. Um, but now just a chance to open up your Bible app or your, or your Bible if you've got that there with you. Let's read. Ecclesiastes 1 says this. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. All right, let me pray. And uh, we will... So it's a low-hanging fruit joke, that one. Okay, but I had to take it. All right. I'll keep going, I'll keep going. Verse 3. What do people gain from all their labours at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, Yet the sea is never full to the place the streams come from where they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been done will be done again. uh, And what, sorry, what has been will be again. And what has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. Maybe you wish I did pray right at the start. (laughs) Then um, keep going. If this is your first time listening, reading Ecclesiastes, uh, you might be wondering if what we just read, was that really the Bible? Did we really just open up to the Bible isn't God, like, isn't God all about purpose? Isn't God all about meaning? Isn't God all about joy and positivity? And, you know, isn't that why he came to church? To, to receive, um, to hear from a God who is positive and who is for you and who gives us meaning? You know, you might be there wondering, like, what is this angst? What is this, like, teenage angst that I'm getting from the writer of Ecclesiastes? I want to, um, because we're doing a, a little series in this, and because this book is so uh, uh, perplexing, I want to give you just a little bit of an overview of what's happening here, who's talking, okay? So a bit of context for us first. Um, this word Ecclesiastes, it comes from a Greek word, uh, which means um, one who gathers an assembly, okay? And it's translated, you might have a different translation there, but usually it's translated teacher or preacher in some parts as well. Um, And so we get this translation, there's a teacher who's gathered together a group of people, gathered together an assembly, and they are going to share their wisdom. They're going to share um, their observations of the world. And uh, they are introduced, this teacher is introduced by the narrator as son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, whether this means that the teacher, the person speaking, or this preacher, is... um, 
some would say, is Solomon, is, is the direct um, descendant of David, is King Solomon. That's the, the obvious one. Others, other scholars sort of say uh, it was another descendant of David. Some even say it was written uh, to be uh, as a biography of King Solomon's life, but it wasn't written uh, by King Solomon. Either way, the point that where, where I felt God was leading tonight, the, the author and that sort of debate doesn't really uh, uh, matter so much just um, in, this, in this context. Um, so we have the teacher in the book. He's the one who's going to speak the most. He's speaking from verse 1 to 3, right up until verse uh, chapter 12, uh, verse 7. But we also have another person in this book. We have another voice in this book. We have the narrator who's going to uh, introduce the teacher to us um, right at the start. And then the narrator is actually going to give some final reflections in in chapters 12 to 14. So they're going to take the words of the teacher and they're going to put it into context of faith. They're going to put some final reflective thoughts on it themselves. Okay, so two voices we're hearing, the first being the teacher, the second being the narrator. Okay, so now you can ask your question of the teacher. Okay, why the angst? Why, what's going on? You know, what is, what, what is this? Is this, was Ecclesiastes just their edgy phase of theological thought? You know, did they, um, you know, were they just putting their headphones in and just kind of closing the blinds in the room and, and throw, throwing on some, some emo music? Do we say emo anymore? Not really. It's kind of like that vibe, though. This, it's tragic, you know, it's depressing. Or at least it seems that at first. And you might be wondering, if you are new to, to church and, and, and God and you're exploring this, you might be like, how did this make the cut? Like, how is this worth talking about today? Thousands of years later, why are we preaching on this? And uh, let me just explain a little dynamic that happens in the Bible. It's that we are so used to so many of the books in the Bible having a positive function. And you, you know what I mean by that, in that they reveal a bit about God's character, they, they point us to who God is, they, re, they have a positive function in our faith journey. The book of Ecclesiastes, though, is different. It has what might be called a negative function. That doesn't mean it's, it's bad, it doesn't mean it's, it's um, irrelevant, it doesn't mean that we should just sort of not listen, not look at it. It has a negative function which works in harmony with the other books of the Bible. Ecclesiastes, its goal is to actually deconstruct all the ways we find meaning and purpose in life apart from God. Its goal is to actually bring us to our knees. If you felt so depressed by reading it, that, that, great, you're on the right track, all right? Its, its goal is to bring us to our knees so that we can see our great need for the gospel, our great need for God, for Jesus. Uh, Robert Short describes Ecclesiastes as this. He says, Ecclesiastes is essentially a kind of negative theologian. He's asking questions that can be answered only by a future revelation of God. And in clearing the road for this revelation, he smashes any and all false hopes to pieces. Ecclesiastes is human self-sufficiency stretched to its absolute limit and found sadly wanting. Um, for some of us over these next few weeks, even, even now as we, as we listen to these words from Ecclesiastes 1, this will be a very challenging couple of weeks 
for you. For others, it will actually be a breath of fresh air. Like, it will actually be relieving to hear, oh, finally, the Bible is talking about this. Finally, there is, you know, I, finally, this is what the world I see before me, this is what it's like. Finally, someone is talking about it. And it will be that. It will be challenging and it will be relieving at the same time for different people because Ecclesiastes is concerned with the true reality of life under the sun. Life on earth as we, as we look around and see it. This is the reality of what it is to live under the sun. And it's concerned as well with the, with the universal human condition. Okay, Think about how crazy it is that this is written thousands of, of years ago, but it's still so true. It's still so uh, uh, authentic. It still speaks to the, the, the world we see around us. It's the facts of life, and, and, and it doesn't pull any punches, okay? So really, a bit of a tip as we look into this is you've just got to, you've got to go with the teacher on this journey, okay? Don't resist. Don't arc, don't arc up and go, no, no, that's not. We'll get there, okay? There's, there's good news coming. I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm telling you now. Um, there's good news coming. Um, but it doesn't pull any punches. Verse 11, no one remembers the former generations. Not even those yet to come will be remembered by those who follow them. As in, you will be forgotten. No one will remember you. Later on, it tells us in chapter 9 that the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices, those who do not, they will all meet the same destiny. All will die at some point. Not only that... But it goes into how, how it tells us about the randomness and unfairness of life. How seemingly, I should say, random and unfair life can be. In chapter 9, verse 11 says this. The race is not to the swift. The battle is not to the strong. Nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned. But time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, no one knows when their hour will come. As fish are caught in a cruel net or birds are taken in a snare, so people are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. In other words, if you haven't witnessed yet, I'm sure everybody here knows this, is that life is not always fair. It's not always, justice does not always prevail in this life. Does justice get served sometimes? Yeah, Does it get served all the time? No. Do the ones who work the hardest get paid the most? Sometimes. Do they get paid the most all the time? No. Do bad things happen to good people? Sometimes. Do good things happen to bad people? Yeah. Do tragic circumstances happen to the most vulnerable? Sadly, yes. This tension that, that, you, that we, we sit in as we read this, is this not the most tension you can feel as, in your Christian faith? You know? isn't, this, isn't this just cutting to the core of, of, of um, your faith? You might be sitting there and going, I know and love and trust a good and loving God, and I, I trust that being in relationship with God is better than not being in relationship. But you might be there going... Still, sometimes my life doesn't 
feel better. It doesn't look better. In fact, maybe you're sitting there thinking, being a Christian actually has, in a lot of ways, made my life worse or, or made my life harder at some points. And as you sit with that tension, you may even think, you know, I, even though I believe in God's justice, I still look around and see unjust things. And, 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 I, and I have to sit and wrestle with that. And you might be thinking, well, shouldn't it be the reverse? Like, shouldn't, shouldn't I invite God in and um, isn't God meant to enhance my life? Isn't, isn't, didn't I invite God into my life to make life better, to make dreams come true? All these things. Whether you've felt this tension before, maybe you've been, maybe you're, maybe you've been in this tension for years in your faith. Maybe for you this has been an ongoing thing, an ongoing struggle. If you're a follower of Jesus, this, will, this is why we need to look at Ecclesiastes, okay? Because at some point in your life of faith, the, these questions will come up. You will at some point experience this sense of, I'm, I'm not being fulfilled as I thought I was um, as a Christian. And uh, Tim Mackey, who, who has the Bible Project, you might have heard of the podcast and, and videos on YouTube, he refers to this as the myth of religious fulfillment. And the myth of religious fulfillment is a, is a mindset that, that says, uh, you and I, we, we get religion, we, we go and take religion, um, in our case, Christianity, we take religion, and as a result, our lives get enhanced. Uh, I do religion, I do the church thing, so that I get something out of it, so that I get a, a benefit of, of some sort. Let me give you sort of a different example. Um, yeah, just to sort of explain this. So as I uh, get a little bit older and, and kind of life, you know, my, my body's not as, as fit or whatever as it, as it was, my go-to injury, I feel like everyone has a go-to injury, you know. My go-to injury is, is a really bad lower back, okay. I know there's a lot of guys out there who can attest to this. Bad lower back. Um, and it's always just kind of come and gone over, over my life. Anyway. A couple of years ago, uh, Lauren, my wife, said, why don't you, I was, I was going through a bad bout of uh, back pain, and um, Lauren said, why don't you try Pilates with me? And I went, oh, okay, like, you know, she just found this, uh, this place that had some cheap Pilates classes and um, um, reformer Pilates. If you don't know what reformer Pilates, you just Google search torture devices and it will, and it will come up there. Um, they just look so, yeah, anyway. Um, so anyway, yeah, Lauren organized these classes and, I, and I'd go along with, with her to these um, Pilates classes. And this was all fine, except um, I'd go along with Lauren and I started realizing I was used to sort of like a, 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 uh, just, a just a, you know, working, working person gym membership, you know, like 10 bucks a week, get in, get out, no one's really there to socialize, right? This Pilates class that I'd go into was really, really fancy, really nice, really refined, okay? And the demographic of people there were, were really fancy women, like really high-class, um, fancy women at this particular uh, place, this Pilates place. And so if I was with Lauren, I'd go along and I could kind of like, you know, at least I was with someone there, I didn't feel so awkward. But sometimes uh, Lauren and my schedule wouldn't line up and I'd have to go to Pilates class by myself, so I'd be in a room full of 15 other 
women and, and um, you know, I'm just there trying to do my, my Pilates. But the only other issue that made me stand out was that if you've ever done a reformer Pilates class before, it's really complicated at first. Like, it's really hard. And um, there's lots of exercises and you're up and, and suddenly, you know, we do this for, for five minutes and suddenly we're changing around completely and there's terminology and, and they're talking, they're like, get in tabletop position. And you're like, what, what is that? Like, what are you talking about? So not only am I the only guy in 15, um, around 15 other women, I'm the only guy who's standing next to my reformer Pilates machine looking around at all the others watching them as they do their exercises. And I just felt so awkward and uncomfortable. And Anyway, it actually really helped my back. And I was able to, uh, you know, I'd sit in the uncomfortableness, I'd feel awkward and whatever. It'd be a cost to me, uh, to my pride, a cost to my wallet, I guess, as well. But a real benefit to my back, (laughs) to my body. So I would keep going. I kept going despite it being this sacrifice, you know, because I got something out of it. And I think what happens, uh, this, this myth of religious fulfillment, is we can often treat God a bit like Pilates, right? We can often treat God a bit like, um, a, a, bit like a class, a bit like something. I'll just I'll show up and I'll feel a bit awkward and it might be a bit of a sacrifice, it might be a bit uncomfortable, but as long as, as long as I get something out of it, it's all worth it. As long as I get some sort of enhancement, it's all worth it. Now, before you jump in and say... Trav, life with God is better. Amen, I agree with you, okay? We're getting there. You've got to hold, hold on to that. We're coming to the, to the good news in a moment. But the question we have to sit in is what happens when God does not enhance your life, but actually there's a diminishing of your life and that comes because of your relationship with Christ? What happens to you when bad things happen, essentially? Do you get angry at God? Do you threaten in your mind to maybe walk away? Maybe you, you cut a deal with God and you go, if you do this, I'll stay. But if you don't, I'm, I'm gone. Is that, is that where your mind goes to? Do you start to doubt if he was ever really there when things go wrong for you? We, we may not see uh, these expectations of religious fulfillment when everything's going right. We may not see when things are going good, but you can see when your expectations um, aren't met, that you can see how strongly you are holding to them. Maybe you're sitting there and you're like, I'm chill, like I'm good, like I'm fine. If, if um, God can do what he wants, I'm fine. But what is the reaction? What happens in your heart when things don't go right? Do you go, where are you, where are you God? Where, where you were meant to be there? I thought you were going to come through for me. What is happening? I thought you had this. If we stretch that out, over years of of unresolved tension, what happens is we start to see people walk away. We start to, the conclusion comes, God didn't work for me. Jesus didn't work. I tried the church thing, it didn't work for me. And we see countless faithful people walk away. But what we see, and this is, why, this is why I love Ecclesiastes, this is why this is so important. What we see in Ecclesiastes is actually a different conclusion. We see in Ecclesiastes that what if God isn't the issue? What if actually my expectations were the issue? What if my expectations are, aren't right, are amiss? 
What if the issue isn't that God didn't give us the life we thought, but instead rather that we expected God to give us a certain type of life, a certain set of circumstances of of a situation? What if the issue is not that God doesn't react in a way that you would like, but rather that we hold unhealthy, damaging expectations of God? Ecclesiastes cuts to the the core of this. It exposes this myth of religious fulfillment. It's uncomfortable. It exposes this disconnection and and this misconception that God is just another thing. It's just another Pilates. It's another yoga. It's another gym membership. It's another uh, subscription service to take to satisfy us. And that this thing is to have something which will ultimately, of course it will satisfy, but it will ultimately enhance our lives. Let's come back. We'll come back to chapter 1 for a moment. The teacher says these words. They say, meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And this word, it, 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 it's used 40 times in Ecclesiastes. And, uh, and it's actually this Hebrew word called hevel. And some translations, as, as you can see, have it as meaningless. Others have it as vanity. Um, but hevel is this really interesting word. It actually has a few layered uh, meanings. And meaningless is sort of close, but it gives off this impression that nothing matters ever, right? Everything is meaningless. There is no meaning whatsoever to be, um, to be gleaned from the world. Um, but it gives off this wrong impression, okay? It sounds a bit nihilistic, a bit pessimistic, um, the word hevel is actually used as, as a metaphor. It's actually used metaphorically um, because it, it means smoke um, or vapor. And so you have to imagine, when you, when you imagine smoke... Now, I had a great illustration here. I was going to get dry ice and pour some hot water over. It was going to create this smoke cloud. Very hard to find dry ice, especially last minute when this idea comes to you. But um, if anyone had brought any tonight, oh, I missed my opportunity, but... Um, now's your chance to, to drop it if you've got it there. Um, no, imagine for a moment like a smoke, a thick smoke cloud that's, um, you know, you can see it and, and it's there, right? It's physically there. You can see this smoke. It looks solid almost, like you could reach out and, and grab it. Um, but as you do, imagine that you reach out and grab this, this smoke. What happens? It doesn't stay in your hand. It, it, it's vanished. Before you know it, you can't grasp the, the smoke. You can't hold it in your hand, pull it in and have a look at it. It's, it's definitely there. Like, you're not imagining things. The smoke is there. But when you try and understand it, when you try and grasp it, it's gone. When you try and make sense of it, vanished. Everything is hevel, says the teacher. Everything in life under the sun is, is not meaningless, but it is confusing, it's perplex, it, it, it's baffling, it, it, sometimes, it doesn't make sense. In other words, our understanding of it has limitations. We as humans cannot understand the life that we see before us. We cannot grasp the smoke, we cannot grasp all that happens in life and reasons for them. Now, the teacher, he's going to walk this out and explain this. He's going to give a lot of examples. The first, he says, What do people gain from all their labours at which they toil under the sun? 
All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. He's saying, what? Why, why is that? How is that so, that's so baffling. Why is that the case? You know, um, uh, the author of The, the Alchemist, Paul Colho, I think he's, or Coelho, his last name, in one of his books writes these words. He says, people get bored in childhood and they hurry to grow up, but then they miss their childhood. They lose their health to earn money, but then they pay money to regain their health. Worried about tomorrow, they forget about today, and in the end, they neither live today nor tomorrow. They live as if they'll never die, but they die as if they've never lived. What is, like, what, how does this, we see that, we, we take part in that. What is that? The teacher is saying, the meaning to life under the sun, if you factor God out of the equation, if you factor him out, you are left with hevel. You're left with hevel. Think about this, you know, you think about unjust things in the world. Um, you think about sports people who train their whole lives for, for, to win gold at the Olympics and then, and then um, slip at the last minute. Years and years of sacrifice and training, gone. How? Just chance, just by accident. The accruing of, 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 of degrees or the saving up for a new car, for a storm to come through and, and wipe out your car or, you know, the, these things, the work in, 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 writing, um, in writing a book or a song or, or building towards something and then another thing comes along and, and it was as if it never happened. What is that? that is, that's hevel, the teacher says. That's smoke. That's, you'll never understand it. Not only that, but the expectation that those things will fulfill you. You know, like you work towards something your whole life. Maybe it's your schooling. I know there's a lot of young ads and teenagers here. Your uni degree, you're working towards something or you're working towards a job. And then when it finally arrives, it kind of, it's kind of satisfying. But then you're on to the next thing. The satisfaction never lasts. And if you peel back the layers, you start to go, what am I even doing this for? You ever get that feeling? What, why do I care so much? What was the point in this? The teacher gives us this illustration. There is nothing new under the sun, okay? These things, generations come, generations go. The reality of life under the sun is that there might be momentary pleasures. Of course, there's these momentary things and joys, but expecting these things to last, expecting these things to give us a fulfilling satisfaction is like chasing the wind. You'll never be able to do it. Are you happy you came to church tonight? (laughs) We need to come face to face with this, okay? We need to come face to face. If we're to have genuine faith, that God is who he says he is, that God is faithful, we need to come face to face with this. We need to have our unhelpful expectations of God torn apart. We need to. We need to journey with the teacher as they pose these questions. Because as we realize this, we, if you, do you feel like this at the moment? You realize in your heart right now, I have a great need for God. I have a great need for someone other than myself to bring meaning to my life. And that as well, even though we look around at this life and go, I can't grasp this, that doesn't mean that there is no meaning there whatsoever. It does not mean uh, just because we can't grasp what God is doing need not mean that he is not there. 
That's an important part we need to come to. God is God. We are humans. God is infinite. We are finite. God is all-knowing and all-governing. We are naive, aren't we? Often so ignorant of the millions of things that God is doing at any given moment. When we live with this perspective that all we see, life under the sun, all we see in this world is all there is. If you think about these 70, 80 years or whatever that, that you have on this earth, if you, if you have to find meaning in that, you'll be, you're just left with heaven. You're just left with this life of, of, of it, it's gone, it's, it's smoke. You'll never understand it. But we believe when, when God is in the picture the hevel is not all there is. The hevel is not the final destination. This is the good news. God does not leave us in this place of meaninglessness, of, of, of pursuit of constant pleasure that never, um, never truly satisfies. He sits above it all, and in Him is where we find our ultimate meaning, where we find our purpose. Jesus enters into the world's hevel, okay? He enters into the confusion and perplexing nature of life. He enters into it to reveal to us that that is not all there is to this life. We exist not as humans just under the sun, but we have eternity in our hearts, says God. The author of Ecclesiastes, he knows there's more to come. God um, not only sits above, but he enters into our lives. Let me read this from 2 Corinthians. Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So what do we do? We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. This is the, the good news, is that because of Jesus, the heaven one day will be cleared away. The smoke will be cleared away. All will be made sense in this life. We may never see the reasons for things in, in our entire life's journey, but in Christ, we are not just living under the sun. We are living for in eternity. And though we may not see the, the resolution of things in our life now, we can have assured faith that God has everything under control, that He is God, He is sovereign, He stands above all things. We don't need to pretend that life isn't unfair or that God's goodness and His existence is somehow threatened when justice doesn't occur or, or that His providence you know, isn't there when, when life doesn't turn out for us. Jesus' faithfulness to us is not deterred by our circumstances. It is constant. It is the only constant in our lives. We don't need to work. I want to tell you this. You don't need to work to achieve our purpose. We don't need to work to find our, our identity in things that are just fleeting, that, that are just momentary satisfaction, but instead... We accept God's given plan for our lives. We simply put our hands up and say, God, you take it from here. You take it. 
I want to trust in you. And so here's just a couple of takeaways for us tonight. I know I got, I got Ecclesiastes 1, I got the intro, okay, but I need to give you some, some good stuff to go off, um, to go away with. Here's a couple of key takeaways. Firstly, we embrace the fact that we are creatures and that God is God. We can embrace that. We can embrace that our time here on earth is, is, is finite, that it, we have a limited perspective on things. Because as we begin to understand that time and life and death are in God's hands and not our own, we stop trying to be God. We stop trying to take control and, oh, I need to do this, I need to do this, because then I'll, then I'll, um, then I'll actually mean something, I'll matter. We, need, we can stop doing that. And instead, we can take our eyes off the things of, of this world, the things that are in front of us, and instead put our eyes on Jesus, fix our eyes on Jesus. Allow him to give us all that we need. We can trust his plan for us when, when things make sense, when things don't make sense. He, our, our relationship with him is not based on, on that. It, it's much deeper. It's a deeper trust than that. The second thing is this, we can receive the present, right? So often we are living in the past or living in the future, worrying about things or worrying about things that we did or worrying about things that we'll do. We can receive, when we come into this knowledge, we can receive the present day with all the things that you've been called to, with work and relationships and and pleasures and wisdoms. They are all a gift from God. When we recognize how these things don't ultimately satisfy it doesn't mean we stop doing them it doesn't mean we just become idle and just that's it we don't we have you know we just stop doing these things instead uh, the teacher actually later will tell us these things work pleasure food and drink are to be enjoyed but they are to be enjoyed as a gift from the hand of god they are to be placed as and seen as a gift from god not as something from which our ultimate meaning can be attain from. We are freed, you're freed, okay, to live in the present as God um, directs and, and gives and, and, and takes away at times. And lastly, um, as the team come on up and as we, we take part in communion, it's actually so fitting that we take part in communion tonight because uh, the last call that we get, um, I think the key takeaway is, is to worship God. Now that we've been freed from this, this, uh, this disconnect, this, this myth of religious fulfillment, now we can truly see who God is. That he in himself uh, ascribes our meaning, gives us purpose in this life. And we come to worship, we come to take communion, not because we might think that something good will happen, like, like if I do this, then, then I'll, you know, I'll get that thing I really wanted. But we come and we respond the only fitting way to our king who does not leave us wanting, does not leave us unsatisfied. Let me read these words from Ephesians 3.20. To him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever endeavor. Whatever state you're in at the moment, whether you're deeply rattled, 
um, at the moment, whether life is, is, is just, you know, or whether you're, you're free, you feel relief, you feel a new comfort, a new closeness to God in that. Either way, the, the response is the same. The response is to fix our eyes not on the material, but on, on Him, our loving Saviour, who sees all, who, who loves us despite our brokenness. And so let us come now to, to the bread and the cup and let us take this as our response, as our worship to him. As we partake in this, we, we, we don't just do it as an act. We, we, we actually partake and we, we choose to engage in this new life, in this new perspective that it is God from whom we, we have meaning. So on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given to you. Just take a moment just to, um, just to eat uh, the, the, the bread that you have and just reflect, take a few moments just to reflect on um, the significance of this for you. Let's just, let's just take a, a few moments. Maybe for you, taking the bread and the cup is a, is a step saying, God, I trust you. God, I put my faith in you even when I can't make sense of life. I trust you. Why don't we all stand as we, as we take the cup? Jesus took the cup and he said, this is my, the cup of the, the new covenant. My blood poured out for you. Drink in remembrance Let's drink together. Let me pray. Lord, we don't take communion lightly. Lord, we thank you for your body broken for us, your blood poured out. We thank you for this this transformation that you bring, that this world that we see is not all there is, but there is in fact a loving creator who has plans and purposes for our lives. And Lord, let us not be distracted. Let us not get bogged down in, 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 in trying to figure everything out. But let us, allow us, Lord, to, to humbly bow before you, to say we are not gods of our lives, that you are our rightful king and ruler. Lord, may this worship that we sing be, be authentic, may it be from a place of, of surrenderance. We love you, Lord. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.